0: But if you would, please take out your Bibles and turn them to Ephesians. As you'll remember, uh, not last week, but the week before, I did a little excursus. I stepped away from Daniel for a time as we were looking at Daniel at the end of chapter 10. When we were looking at the spiritual warfare that happens in the life of God's people. And I began looking at Ephesians with you. Uh, I'm going to finish that this morning. We want to continue to come back to Ephesians 6 and get the uh, last time looking at the what like what what is what is the battle and now how do we fight it i mean that's kind of where paul goes paul lays out that our battle is not against flesh and blood but against power or spiritual powers and principalities and so he does in the first four verses of 10 to 13 gives us that and then for 14 to 20 then he tells us how do we fight it how do we stand and fight and so that's what we're looking at this morning. This morning we are going to read the whole paragraph just as we did a few Sundays ago just to get the context and help set the, set the stage for the flow of Paul's thought. But we'll be primarily focusing on Ephesians chapter, or 6, 14 to 20. So Beloved of God, Ephesians 6, starting in verse 10. This is God's infallible and word. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. So ends the reading of God's word. May he add his blessing. Please pray with me. Father, this is your time. We are your people. This is your word. Use it, I pray, to strengthen us, encourage us, transform us, and ground us. Give us your grace to understand. Give us your peace to proclaim boldly. As through Christ we pray. Amen. When we think about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, sometimes it doesn't, it's not as clear to us in the American context, but to be a disciple of Jesus Christ means warfare. It means a battle is inevitable. It means that we will fight. And, and you know, in the words of Wesley from Francis Bride, anybody who tells you something different is telling you something. Okay, that didn't land. <laughs> I thought surely that was going to land, but anyway, scratch that one. Discipleship is warfare. When we follow Christ, we are going to be at war with our flesh, and anybody who's lived any amount of time as a Christian knows this to be true. We're going to live at war with the world because the world system is fixed against God. We're going to live at war with powers and principalities and cosmic powers because there, are, there is a real kingdom of evil that is really intent on really doing real harm. How many reels can we work in there? So we are at war. And if we're not struggling, I, I tell people all the time when they say, Pastor, I just, I'm struggling with the sin. And I look at them and I say, good. Because if it's not a struggle, you've, you're abdicating. You, you, you're admitting defeat. Uh, I don't like struggling with sin, but beloved of God, it's what we're called to do. We're called to struggle with our sin. We're called to struggle with brothers and sisters and, and their sin. And so when God calls us to himself, he is calling us as disciples, as his sons and daughters, but he's calling us to fight to bear arms and fight these spiritual powers that are at work in the world. And how do we fight? We fight by the strength of Christ. How do we stand? We stand by the strength of Christ. How do we have victory? We have victory in the victory of Christ. And so the fight of our time that we're in is not based on who we are, what we can do, how strong we can be, and the intellect that we have. It's all about what Christ has done, is doing, and will do. And so we have this, this victory, we have this strength, and so often I know it feels so inevitable that we will be defeated, doesn't it? It, it? If you are honest about your own sin struggle, sometimes does it just feel inevitable that you are defeated? It does for me, but then I come back around to stuff like this and I'm reminded God has a plan and God has enacted a plan and God has, is constantly working in and through his people to bring victory. Beloved of God, if you're in Christ this morning, you have victory. Whatever whatever struggles you have, yes, I don't like mine, you don't like yours, but you have victory. And Satan wants to tell you that you don't. Satan wants to constantly keep you on a cycle of guilt and shame where you're forgetting what your identity is. It's not this defeated slug. It's a son. You're a son. You're a daughter of the king of the universe. And while Satan can be uh, he, he can get to us. He can get into our ears. He certainly gets into mine. Man, come back to the apostle Paul and say, and remember that we can be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. That's what Paul is telling us. When we think about warfare, the Old Testament is filled with examples of the way that God put his people in battle situations, and it wasn't what appeared to be the strongest that conquered. It was the name of God You think of Gideon. Gideon was kind of a weakling, and God called him to fight the Midianites. And when Gideon assembled his army, God said, that's too many. Too many. Just take 300. And in fact, all you're going to need is a torch and a clay pot because the weapons that you have are not of this world. They're weapons of Yahweh. And the Lord gave him the victory. Joshua marched around Jericho. I mean, you've got to think that a, that a, 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 a group of people in a city that has got a wall around it, and they're watching this army walk in a circle around it day after day, they've got to think, what are these jokers doing? This is dumb. Yeah, just keep marching. Maybe you'll lose some weight, guys. I don't know. But what happens on the seventh day is the Lord gives them victory because they did it the Lord's way. The Lord had weapons of warfare that this world does not know. And so, when we think about spiritual warfare, we need to understand God has the power to defeat it, so God gives us the power to win, but God also gives us the strategy, how do we do it? He gives us the what, He gives us the how, right here in the book of Ephesians. And so, we fight best when we bow before the Lord and seek to imitate Him in our daily lives. We fight best when we are in submission to God. We fight best when we are living out the imitation of Christ. Because, beloved, when we live out the imitation of Christ, do you know how much we're going to stand out in a world that rejects and hates and doesn't want Christ? We're going to stand out. It's going to be noticed. But glory to God when it is, because we are walking the pathway that God has laid out for us. And so, beloved, there is no better direction than that. Well, this morning, as we're kind of looking at verses 14 through 20, there's one idea I want for us to see, and it's namely this, that personal holiness and fervent prayer are God's means of protecting His people. And personal holiness and fervent prayer are God's means of protecting His people. When we're looking at Ephesians, uh, one, of, one of the things that we're going to take, we're going to break down from this armor is the actual, what it's getting at for us, what, what the armor is communicating to us. So what Paul is saying here is you have weapons of warfare, weapons that help you stand, that not only help you stand, so we don't merely survive, these weapons give us victory. We don't merely get victory, we live in the glory of Christ, we live in the grace of Christ, we live in the community and family of Christ. So it's not just like we merely win a battle, we have ultimate victory in Christ. But it's interesting The way Paul lays this out here in verse 14, he says, stand therefore. Again, that is an imperative verb. Brad, what does imperative mean? It means it's express command. But the tense in which this one is written, it is there's an urgency to it. And it's not just telling you to, when there's nothing else, stand up, it's saying, as a as a believer in Christ, stand. That is your position. You stand, you stand in Christ, not in your own strength not by your own, you know, arrogance or whatnot. It's in Christ that we stand. And so Paul has given us the command that dominates the Christian life. What are we to do? Stand in Christ. Wherever we go, we stand in Christ. When our ideas are being challenged, we stand in Christ. When we're proclaiming the gospel, we stand in Christ. That's his point. We stand, therefore, in Christ. And so, what what is he doing here? Well, really, he's just continuing the thought of verse 13. 13 says, take up the whole arm of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand firm. So, stand again. So, do you get it? Paul is, wants us to stand. He wants us to stand in Christ. He wants us to live for God, and he's telling us, how we stand, and what we stand on. They're made very clear here in Ephesians 6, 10 to 20, how we stand. He's already told us and what we stand on. We're kind of getting around that. So what we're looking at here, he says, stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth. As he is beginning to get into this armor, I want for us to make the connection that I began to make the last time we were looking at this. So often, people get so consumed in just taking every little piece of armor and giving all these historical descriptions. That's great stuff. It really is. I love the history of it, too. But if we stay there, we miss the heart of what Paul is telling us to do about this armor. There's a specific instruction here. Look at the words he uses. He uses words like truth, righteousness, feet putting on the gospel, a gospel of peace, faith for the shield, and the Word of God and helmet is salvation. He's using words that are getting at the heart of what God does for us and the heart of who God is. God is truth. God is righteousness. God is our means of salvation. So what Paul is laying out, he's taking these character qualities of God and saying, so how are we going to stand in the day of trouble? Well, are we going to do something extra? Is this some spiritual exercise where we have to go through, where we have to sort of make sure we have our helmet on and our breastplate on? And I mean, I've had people who pray through Ephesians 6 and every day clothe themselves in the armor of God. I have no problem with that. That's fine. That's good. But what Paul's getting at here is it's God's character. The, the sum of the armor is God's own character. Remember, I referenced back to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1, the last time we were together, when Paul says, be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children. So what are we to do in the day of evil? We're to be imitators of God. What are we to do in the day of, of ease? Be imitators of God. What are we to do in our workplace? Be imitators of God. How do we live in our marriages and with our families? We seek to be imitators of God. And when people come to confront us or, or do battle, but remember, we wrestle not with flesh and blood, Then we imitate God by standing on truth and righteousness. This is a beautiful thing. So, wearing this armor is us having the character of God. This is really a call to moral excellence. It is. And in a decadent society, what what a different message to say, hey, it's not as if morality, it's not only that morality matters, it's like we're called to a sense of moral excellence, not so that we can be saved and not so that we can look down on other people. Jesus was the most morally excellent uh, person to ever walk the face of this earth, and who did he hang out with? Sinners, the broken, the lost, the hurting, the people who needed the righteousness that he had. He didn't come to the people who thought they had it all in themselves. He came to the people who knew they needed it. So when we go, we are imitating Christ, beloved, we are in a world that needs the character of Christ they need the truth, they need the righteousness, they need the salvation, they need the faith, they need the gospel of peace. And we're uniquely called, you and me, if you're in Christ this morning, called to live that out before them. And so when we look at the armor of God, I don't want us to think this is another thing, an add-on to what we already do. Paul is simply calling us to walk in the character of Christ, to walk in the character of Yahweh. And beloved of God, it is no coincidence that he starts with the belt of truth. It is no coincidence that he starts there. He says literally in the Greek, wrap around your waist, truth. That's what he says. The idea of girding yourself with truth. This is foundational to everything we do as Christians because we understand above all things that there is no your truth and my truth and their truth, that there is truth. It's objective and we stand there. That is why we cannot compromise in the public square when our ideas get challenged, especially our ideas about God's ethic for marriage? Why, why, do we, why don't we just say, okay, and, and you do you and you do me? Because we can't, because the truth demands that we stand on God's ethic. And so truth becomes foundational. Why can't we compromise in, in other ways? Because whatever the Word of God says, we are bound by it, and we live it. We stand on it. We believe it. We proclaim it. And so that Paul begins with a, a belt of truth, a foundation of truth. He's telling us that God's truth, it demands our integrity. Now, Brad, are you you're making any room for us to make mistakes? Yes, of course. I make mistakes all the time. I say dumb stuff. I walk away from conversations and think I shouldn't have said that and I should have said this. I harbor anger in my heart at times. I don't, I'm not always a perfect dad or a perfect husband by any stretch. But that doesn't lessen the call for us to be imitators of Christ by the Spirit of Christ. We have this beautiful gift called repentance. It's wonderful that we get to turn from our sin by the power of Christ and be renewed day by day. So, yes, we're not going to do this perfectly beloved of God, but don't, don't take that idea of it's the same principle as someone says, Well, I don't want to go to church because there are hypocrites there. Well, then don't go anywhere because hypocrites are everywhere. And guess what? You're one too. We all are, but we can't, we can't lower the standard just because we slip sometimes. No, the standard stays, and we constantly are asking God's Spirit to help us step up and step up and step up. So it's the belt of truth, and it is the bedrock of our trust. This truth of God is the bedrock of our trust. Because this is true, if you're in Christ this morning, because this is true, this Word, this Bible, your Word is true, true. You understand that now you have a relationship with the author of this that is built on trust, and that you can trust him. And so this is beautiful. And I don't also don't think it's coincidental that Paul put the belt of truth and the breastplate of righteousness together. What does he mean by the breastplate of righteousness? And I love the fact that that's the breastplate. What protects your heart? is the breastplate. What is in? What has Christ, per Paul's beautiful uh, book of Romans, what has Christ done for us, brought his own righteousness where? To our hearts. And so when, we're t- when, when Paul mentions the breastplate of righteousness, don't simply think he's simply just getting at what it means to be justified in Christ, declared righteous. That's a small part of it. No, what Paul is getting at, what is the breastplate of righteousness? How are we protected by the righteousness of God? that we are in a right relationship with God, that God has restored our relationship with him, so now positionally, right, positionally, we are right. And so one of the best measures of protection that I have against the flesh, the world, and Satan is the fact that I'm in a right relationship with God. That means that ultimately, I can't be snatched away, I can't be drawn away, and I can't be destroyed. No matter what may happen to my body, I am secure in Christ because of his righteousness. So we are positionally right. But you know what it's also the breastplate of righteousness calls us to do? It calls us, in a sense, to be practically right, to seek to live uprightly, to display the righteousness of God. Beloved, it's not works righteousness when we're seeking to live out the precepts of God. It's not works righteousness when we say we're called to be righteous in the public square. We're called to be righteous in our home, in our jobs, and in other places. We're called to live uprightly. So often you can come across people who say, oh, I'm a worm, I'm capable of no good thing. That's just false thinking if you're in Christ. Are you what you should be? No, neither am I. But are you what you will be? No, because Christ is working. So keep that in mind. It's not wrong to want to be righteous. We should all desire to be righteous in every sphere of life, to live rightly, to do what's right. Then he goes on, he says, and as Choose for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Don't you love? I love what he does there. He ties in gospel with peace, gospel of peace, the gospel of peace. Why? Because the gospel gives us peace with God, and it gives us peace with ourselves. There is that is what the gospel does. Of course, it's more than that. It's bigger, but that's essentially what it does. But this gospel of peace, he says, fit your feet ready, or get your feet ready to proclaim the gospel. That's the idea what he's talking about. How do we do war in life? Well, the gospel. If, if, if I wrestle not with flesh and blood, and I'm not trying to take you down as a person, I'm trying to deal with ideas, then my argument is a gospel argument. I'm bringing the gospel to bear right now and here on this conversation so that you and I can get what? To the truth and understand righteousness. It all works together. It all works together. And when we look at it like this, beloved, it kind of takes some of the personal nature out of it. Now, I'm going to confess to you, if someone ever starts calling me names, I take that personally. That's, that's an ad hominem attack. I mean, that they're now they're getting out of the sphere of ideas, and they're using name calling, which usually lets you know they have no more arguments. But this, what, what this is trying to do is get us out of the sphere of us taking everything personal and realizing we're dealing with the power behind these people that is waging war for their soul. And we have an opportunity to bring truth and righteousness to bear by the gospel of peace. The gospel is, is beautiful, and the gospel does. It shapes how we live. Why? Because it demands a response. Now, Brad, you keep using that word. What do you mean? Well, we've already said that it gives us peace with God and peace with ourselves. But what I mean by the gospel is this. That when Paul writes the Corinthians and he said God made him, that is Jesus, who had no sin to be sin for us. So that in him, in Jesus, we become the righteousness of God. That is the gospel in a nutshell. This gospel makes us righteous and holy where we were once unrighteous and unholy. And once we've been brought into this position, beloved, we stand on a power that is otherworldly. And now my goal is not to convince you of anything. It's to proclaim the gospel and let the Spirit do His work. Now, I'm not responsible for you to believe. I want to see you believe. But it's the Spirit's power now who will work in you and move on. So this gospel, it helps us defeat lies in other people, but what else does it do for us, beloved? It helps us defeat the lies that Satan would whisper to us. Are you shodding your feet And the gospel of peace day by day, putting on the the truth of the gospel in your mind, filling your mind with the truth of the gospel so that when the lies do come, you can dispel the lie. We should, beloved, the gospel of peace. And he says, in all circumstances, verse 16, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one the shield of faith. Now I want us to clear up something right here right now. The shield of faith, the faith in that little phrase is not referring to your faith, how much you believe. The shield of faith is the faith. When we talk about our our relationship with God or we talk about our Christianity as a whole, we call it the faith. Someone has left the faith. It is the overarching description of God's faithfulness and the message of truth that He has given to us. So how do we we distinguish flaming darts? We hide behind the shield of God's faith and faithfulness for us so that we now can dispel lies and truth. Flaming darts, think of them as lies, as things that would seek to incinerate, and it's God who extinguishes those I brought this out last time, but it bears repeating because it is not, should not be lost on us that in the covenant promise to Abraham, God told him, I will be a shield to you. And Paul kind of picks up on this covenantal language of God being a shield for his people, for us to hide behind knowing that I can't extinguish the fiery darts, but God can. My faith is often weak, but the faithfulness that god brings into my life is much stronger than anything i could ever do. so why not hide behind god's faithfulness? stand on his truth. indulge his righteousness. believe his gospel. because when i do that, the battle is won. it doesn't mean that there's no injury, it doesn't mean that it's not hard, but the battle is won. why bring up the covenant aspect? what is, because here's what i'll tell you. what is your best weapon? in the spiritual battles that you find yourself in, your best weapon is relationship. It's relationship with God. It's being in a covenant relationship with God where you know God says, I will be your God and you will be my people. And all the implications of being in covenant with a God who loves, who extends mercy, who is truth, who gives grace, who heals as far as the curse is found. That's the protection that you and I walk in this morning if you're in Christ. So in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which, with which you can extinguish the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Again, you have an express command right there in verse 17. We have to take the helmet of salvation, the urgency, express command, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. When we talk about the helmet of salvation, of course, you can picture something that would protect the head, but we think about where where do we immerse our minds? Do we allow our minds to be immersed in the culture and all of what it says and everything that it does? Or do we begin to immerse our minds in the saving grace of God, the salvation that God provides? So what does that do? Well, when my mind is immersed in God's salvation, it's harder for lies to get in there because now I'm believing what God says about me, not what the world says. And so the helmet of salvation, it's, it's compelling us, it's compelling us to immerse ourselves in the saving work, the saving grace of God, again coming back round to the truth and righteousness, which is the gospel of peace, which God is a shield for us, and He keeps our minds whole rooted in His salvation, and we have the Word of God to take our stand, to stand on. So when we think about the Word of God, we are empowered by the Spirit, or we are empowered through the Word by the Spirit to know God, to be known by God, and to know the truth of God. And so, beloved, I keep coming back around to the truth because you live in a world that really does seek to diminish it. We have opinion polls now. We don't look at raw data. How does this make you feel? What do you think about this? Well, it doesn't matter how it makes us feel or what we think. I don't want anybody's feelings to be hurt and what we think is important, but that's not the objective data that we need. We need the truth. And the Word of God is the truth. And this is where we stand. Paul's told us on what, now he's told us how. When we think about how we resist the world, and how we resist the schemes of the devil. I mean, seriously, one of the primary ways we do it is godliness, imitating Christ, seeking to live out the precepts of these things that we've just talked about, what it means to be righteous and holy and a person of peace and saved and person walking in God's faithfulness and having faith in God. If we're going to hate sin, if we're going to hate the what the world is pushing them, beloved, where it begins is with loving Christ, with loving Christ. If we're going to flee from the devil, we're going to submit to Christ. We talked about that last time. And so Paul's point here is not to show us how to beat the devil on our own. <laughs> That's not what he's doing. He's, he's showing us that our only hope of victory that we have is submission to Christ and living out the character of Christ. And I love what he does. After he, after he kind of lays all this out about the armor, he flows right into praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me. I'm going to stop right there for a second. <laughs> exactly what he does is after he's given us this beautiful picture of what it means to stand in the face of spiritual battle and the tools that we have right at our fingertips, he immediately transitions to prayer, because it's through prayer that God prepares us and provides for us. And so, when we think about what it means to be in spiritual battle, you know, if you have a a sin struggle, I hope you're praying about it. I hope you're praying about it daily, because prayer is how we get in line with God. Prayer is how we find the strength to go one more time with avoiding this particular sin, and so it, it becomes foundational to our warfare. If you look here, 1819 and 24 times Paul mentions the word prayer or some cognate of it, and the word all he's telling us, what does that tell us about prayer? That prayer is constant and pervasive. We should be praying. We should be a praying people. It should be as natural to pray as it is natural to do anything else. We should constantly be praying praying for one another, praying for ourselves, praying for your church, praying for different missionaries, praying for the ministries that you're involved in, praying for your workmates, praying for your family, all kinds of things. We should be constantly be in prayer. But I love what he says here. He says, praying at all times in the Spirit. Praying at all times in the Spirit. And then he, I'm going to come back around to that, but at the end of that, who are we supposed to be making supplication for? For all the saints. Praying for Christian brothers and sisters, that's why Richard and I sometimes in the pastoral prayer, we're praying for other Christians that none of us know. It's because Scripture says we should, because guess what? They're in the same struggle that you're in and that I'm in. And I love this. Paul says prayer, prayer does do a few things for us. What does prayer do for us? One of the things it does is it keeps us dependent upon God and His sufficiency it reminds us, I am not sufficient. It keeps us dependent upon God and His sufficiency because we keep coming back to Him in prayer knowing that we can't provide this for ourselves. But it also keeps us alert to the needs of others and of ourselves. It, 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 if, if we are, have a mindset of prayer, I'm wanting to listen to you because I want to know how I can be praying for you. And I want to be able to tell you, hey, brother, I heard you, or hey, sister, I heard you were going through this and that. I just want you to know I've been praying for you about that and just trusting the Lord with and for you. When someone does that for me, that is encouraging. Prayer also keeps us concerned with the needs of all the saints, others focus. We are a very individualistic me, 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 me society. And one of the simple things about prayer, one of the simple things it does is it says keeps me concerned with your needs how you can be blessed, how you can flourish, how you can have hope, how you can have peace. It's a humbling experience because it also teaches us humility that I'm not the best thing in the world. I get an opportunity to share your burdens. When Paul says, praying in the Spirit... This is really simple to understand. Some people have made more of it than it is. Well, praying in the spirit is not some other experience that we have. It's not some sort of charismatic experience that we have. That as in I pray, but then when I pray in the spirit, it's really, it's really just fantastic. We should always be praying in the spirit. We when we pray, we're praying in the spirit. What does Paul mean? That little prepositional phrase there? That we're praying in his power. That it's his power that gives power to our prayers, that we're praying by His enabling, that His work in us, His guiding us in all truth, and being our advocate before the Father is what helps us to know how to pray. So when Paul says pray in the Spirit, he's just saying pray in the power of the Spirit and not in some sort of selfishly motivated way. But You know what I love about the Apostle Paul here? This is very personal to me. You're talking about Paul. Now, if we're Christians, we could—he uh, would not ever call himself this, but he, he's, he's, a, he's a superstar of Christianity. I mean, he wrote half the New Testament. He's the guy who said, "Imitate me as I imitate Christ." He's the guy who planted churches everywhere, and people were in awe of, who, who experienced great things and and hard things. But I love verse nineteen, and also for me, pray for me. Pray for me that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. He is asking this people to pray that he would be bold. This man that when you read his letters, it seems like boldness is not much of an issue, but I love the humility because it is a tall order. It is a tall task to proclaim the Word of God. And Paul says, pray for me. Why? The same reason I will love it if you pray for me, because the proclamation of God's word takes divine strength. It takes spirit-enabled divine strength for you to go out and proclaim the word to other people, even your neighbors and friends. That takes divine strength. So let us pray for one another. Paul says, "Pray that I'd be bold and be, he, that he'd be bold in his preaching, i.e. that he'd not be ashamed of the gospel. Pray that for me. Let me pray that for you. Pray that for each other, that we not be ashamed of the gospel, that we be bold in proclamation. See, Paul is saying, I want to be a faithful ambassador who is faithfully proclaiming the word of truth. Again, here we come back around to that idea. And I need boldness. He's an ambassador in chains. that He may declare boldly, as I ought to speak. He says he uses it boldly twice in verses 19 and 20. Again, we get the sense that Paul doesn't just want to be a polished speaker who's eloquent. He doesn't want the world's view of success. He wants to be a man who proclaims the gospel boldly. And beloved of God, that's what we need. So we pray, prayer, prayer for, pray for me, pray for Richard and any other pastor that is an influence in your life. Don't pray that we'd be eloquent. Don't pray that we would be any other thing by, any other rubric that the world measures success success by. Pray that we would be bold. Pray that we, when we open our mouths, it would be with bold truth from the Word of God because that's what transforms lives. When we think about prayer, we need to understand that we are submitting to God and His will. If we're coming to God with a plan in prayer and saying, God, and we do this, we all do it, I want A, B, and C, and I need you to do it. I need, I need A, B, and C. Do, do I, that, That's just misunderstanding why we come in prayer. As we talked about in Daniel, when we come in prayer, we are coming back because of the promises of God. We're coming back to pray back to God, His promises, and to boldly ask that His will be done. Can we make requests? Sure. But what did Jesus say when he made his request? But not my will, your will be done. That we're putting it back to God and say, we want your will. Ultimately, yes, I would love this healing, but I want your will. I would love this promotion, but I want your will. I would love this or that, but I want your will. And sometimes God's will is not our will. And sometimes that's painful. But that doesn't make God any less good or powerful. It just reminds us that God has a plan that he is working, and he's calling us into that plan. He's calling us into that path, and that's the path we have to walk. But when we pray, we're seeking the grace to be content with God's design, though, you see. When we pray, we should seek the grace to be content with God's design. Prayer provides for us in that when we find that grace, that it sustains us and it renews our confidence. It does for me. When I'm having uh, dark days, hard times... And I'm coming to the Lord in prayer. So often I don't really want to pray. It's the grace of the Lord I'm reminded of in Scripture that is so often that little crack in the window that begins to open the light back in. Ah, oh, yes, this is not what I wanted, but God, you are good and you are the king and you've not abandoned me. We pray, beloved, because through prayer we grow in our understanding and through prayer we find the confidence to move forward. Through prayer we remember that God is God and we are not. God has his way and he is leading us to a good end. Please pray with me. Father, thank you for this word and its power. Thank you for the rich truth that lies herein. I pray, O Lord, that you would help us to be people who stand on truth, who are righteous because of your work, who are saved because of your work, who possess the gospel of peace because you have freely given, who stand behind the shield of promise, the faith that you have delivered, and who walk in the power of the gospel of peace. Help us, O Lord, to remember it in days and times where we go through dark days or dark times where we sadness or anger or abandonment or anxiety, all the things that plague the human mind and heart, to remember the truth that you are with us and that you have given us hope in Jesus. And it's through his name we pray. Amen.